now though we're going to talk uh, to two authors, writers, novelists, literary greats. Kate DeGoldie and Elizabeth Knox with me in the Wellington studio. It's an almost impossible task because we asked them for their top five recommended reads. So we've got a mix of old, a mix of new, some obsessions, some long running series. If you're in need of a summer read or perhaps a last minute Christmas, Christmas gift, this could be for you because Kate Goldie and Elizabeth Knox are here. Kia ora. Kia ora. Kia ora. Thank you for being with us today. Um, this was quite a... It was quite a task we set you, really, wasn't it, Kate? Yeah, I mean, funnily enough, I got slightly more intentional about reading this year because I had several years of really odd reading mm. and I started writing things down. But even so, it was virtually impossible to go back and distill. And I know Elizabeth had exactly the same problem. Mm. There's so many... There were so many great reads for me this year, unusually, you mm-hmm. know, lots. So, um, And also, as I know Elizabeth is... I'm rereading quite often and mm. discovering older books, so that's why we've got that mix. Yeah. That's the thing, I suppose. There's always a kind of a, a great pressure, and there's great excitement, you know, when a new book comes out, and and that is wonderful in itself, and you want to get your hands on it and read it. But there's so many books, you know, you can you're never going to be able to read all the books, so it is wonderful to to discover something that is new to you, even if it's not mm. new as in just published. Yes, well, once you get the habit of doing that. Um, I think I think what happened was that Fergus and me together, but probably driven by him because he's the reader in our family, started reading mid-century, um, mid-20th century huh. women writers and would work our way through the whole of the oeuvre like Penelope Fitzgerald or Barbara Commons or Deirdre Baker and we'd read everything they'd written. Uh-huh. And that business of there being, of it being possible to actually deeply immerse yourself in a single writer was mm. fantastic and and also sort of feel like you're bringing someone back to life mm-hmm. inside your life yeah absolutely it's a really interesting way to to be able to take that deep dive into with that bit of time and distance as well mm. so that you're not always trying to catch up with the latest thing that that has just come out and you can and you can look at a body of work in that more considered kind mm. of a way i suppose can't you and, and consider them across time and read them mm. with the sort of knowledge of the 30 years in between, but also being clear about their context, their historical context when you read them. And everyone by now will know about Backlisted, the, the podcast that looks at Backlisted titles. Mm-hmm. And that's actually, just like you and Fergus Elizabeth, has actually made me slightly resistant to new books. I don't want to read them <laughs> in the moment. I, I feel like reading off the um, off task, if you like, uh-huh. um, in a way, which is interesting. Okay, well, let's maybe start with. Um, should we start with some of your first books, Kate? Why don't you take us through the first couple on your list? I've forgotten which order I had them in. Oh well, I've got "I'm Homeless If This Is Not My Home" by Laurie Moore. So, a brand new book this year, mm-hmm. a new book, a first in quite a long time from Laurie Moore, um, who um, is probably one of my favourite American writers, if not mm. the favourite, and um, so I look forward to this greatly. It's um, she, She's always surprising. She's formally inventive, so she's often playing with um, story structure. But on, on one level, this is a very simple story. It's about um, this sort of doubleness all through the narrative. So there's two people, one who's dying and one who may or may not be dead, and um, Finn as the brother of one and the former lover of another. So he's sort of oscillating between them in this moment, in 2016, before the presidential election. Um, But it's about 
so much more than just that. It's a, there's a road trip in it where Finn collects what may or may not be the corpse of his ex-lover who has been suicidal for most of her life despite the fact that she's been a laugh therapist. She's been a comedian for people with sadness. Um, it, and he takes that her body, possibly still alive. Sounds grotesque, but it's actually a very, very funny book and also very moving mm. and takes her from... Um, one state to another to deposit her in a body farm where she wanted to have her remains. And all of which sounds kind of grim, but it's actually incredibly funny because um, Laurie Moore is brilliant with language. She's playing games with language the whole time. A friend of mine read this and said, man, it's almost more more than you can put up with because she's at such sort of high-octane form. But I also read the book as being partly about America. And, I mean, you can't read... You can't read any American novelist without thinking they're talking to America in some way. Mm. And um, and the body of his um, ex-partner seemed to me to be also the body of America, half alive, mm. half dead, literally deliquescing as they're driving through the American landscape. Mm. So it's working on a number of levels. It's an incredibly enjoyable book. Um, the um, brother is lying in hospital and, you know, on the doors of death, but still vitally interested in the outcome of the World Series and bubbling behind everything is the election which Finn mm. a um, history teacher who's been fired for pushing against um, what you might call mainstream ideas of history um, he's, he, he's perfectly confident that Trump won't get in but you know, we all know what happens so that's, that's the merest outline of the book between every line in a Laurie Moore there's sort of pulsation of other things and at the same time there's another story being told, an epistolary story. A woman in the 1870s is writing to her dead sister. And the two stories come together in a most um, brilliantly wrought way. Mm. So I'll say no more because I, do you think that's enough, Elizabeth, to say about it? Yeah, well, yeah, well, I don't want to know what the brilliantly wrought way is. <laughs> <laughs> Except by, yeah. Yeah. That sounds extraordinary. Um Laurie Moore's not someone I know, but I think I'm going to go away and start have a look with, at that one. Start with oh. her short stories or okay. her novel Anagrams, which is also a work of genius in okay. my view. Well, that's a good... Yeah, the short stories. The short yes, stories. Yeah, yeah. Okay, start with the short stories. There we go. Elizabeth, if I can come to you with your one, uh, The Daughter of Time. So this was another one of my completest readings. Um I came to it because I was had read all of Georgette Heyer's Regency romances and then a American writer called Alan Kushner, who's the queen of manners punk, recommended I start with Joan Aiken. And I loved reading Joan Aiken's Regency romances and then I realised that she also wrote the crime novels and mm-hmm. her crime novels were so good. And then I ran out of Joan Aiken crime novels and I looked around and took is, advice. Isn't that awful when you get to the end of a yes. series and you're just bereft? It's well, bad you enough when you get to the end of a book, but then at least if there's more in the series, you can go to the next one. But then when you get to the end of the series... Or at the end of a writer's oeuvre, you yeah. know, because yeah. they're gone, in yeah. the case of Joan Aiken. And, oh. and, and everyone knows her children's books, so mm. that's, you know, they're still widely read. So then, then I came to J- Josephine Tay. So a Scottish writer, died in 1952, and this novel... The Daughter of Time was her last book, mm-hmm. so published in 1951. And it is often on lists of best crime novels ever, like high up in the 
top five. And that's a great oddity because there's no action in it. No one gets up and runs around and chases people down stairwells. Uh, because the hero, Alan Grant, who's her, the, her hero of her, all her detective novels, is lying in bed in traction with a broken leg. And this mm. was back when people with broken legs stayed in hospital for weeks and weeks and weeks. And mm-hmm. he's bored out of his skull and his stage actress friend turns up with a series of portraits that she's acquired from somewhere. I think she's actually possibly even borrowed some of them from the portrait gallery. Portrait gallery, mm-hmm. yes, because she's like people do things for her and fall over, you know, because she's glamorous. <laughs> uh, and but without any information attached to them, so he's not supposed to know who these people are. Mm-hmm. And the one that interests him, he thinks this is a sad, noble face. And it turns out it's Richard III. And he prizes himself on his face-reading skills. And he thinks, you know, surely this man didn't murder two little boys in the tower, you know, Mm. the princes in the tower. So the whole novel is basically this man in his hospital bed dragooning everyone around him, doctors, nurses, a student friend researching in the British Museum, his cleaning lady, just anyone who comes to visit him, into helping him reinvestigate the murder of the princes in the tower by Richard III. And yeah, that's that's the novel. And it's absolutely extraordinary. It's, it's, mm. it's, a, it's a very fun book for people who like detective fiction and pr- any procedurals because it plays with all of that because of the constraints. But it's also a really, really good history book. Mm. It's really good on Richard III. And it's really good on the fact that what everybody knows is from Shakespeare. You know, <laughs> Thomas Moore wrote this kind of really nasty um hearsay memoir about Richard III and then Shakespeare read that and wrote Richard III Mm. and that's what everybody knows and thinks so it's kind of getting past Shakespeare really. And also you've you've got to I suppose you've got to think about why uh, you know who was Shakespeare's audience and it was that the royal house of the time and Tudor. of course, it was in their mm. interests to yes. villainise him as well, of course. Yes, because so. he was a Plantagenet. Yeah. Yes. Do you like the way she calls him the sainted moor? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but she actually added to Richard III's scholarship with that book. Yes, it that's was, right, she did. It was and taken seriously. Yeah. Huh. So the the um, the edition I read has a long... Um, forward that's about the discovery of his body. You know how it was, I was under the car say, park? That mm. was one of yes. my favourite stories of the decade, I think, when mm. he was discovered under the car park. That, that was, was amazing. So, and then buried in the abbey. Like, yeah. Oh. yeah, what a I re- story. I read that book when I was about 15, I think. It had just mm. been reprinted. And um, it made me a mad Richard III, and I even wanted to join the Richard III Society. <laughs> so it, it d- does sort of evoke a kind of passion for Richard III in you. Oh, fantastic. That sounds like a cracker. Right, let's uh, come back to you, Kate. Um, tell me about Daniel Mason and North Woods. Um, again, this is another really American one. quite a full book, mm. um, but it's... It's it's very attractive to me. I really like discontinuous narratives, mm-hmm. and I mean, and in a way, a long series is a kind of discontinuous narrative, isn't mm-hmm. it? Um, but in this case, Daniel Mason, I think this is his fourth novel, has honed in on a, a piece of land in rural Massachusetts, North Woods, and he writes about its inhabitants over three hundred years mm-hmm. um, in different um, in different forms. Actually, he's he ventriloquizes all sorts of writing forms, different voices, perspectives, but also again epistolary um, story. 
a um, painter writing to his poet lover in the 19th century. He has um, sales talk writing. Um, He uses historical writing and address to an historical society. So he's playing with voice register form and also just giving us a history of individuals of such a variety and such interest across a long period of time. Starts with two lovers running away from a Puritan society, um, Mm. a town where um, their love is forbidden and finding their place in the woods and moves through to the apple orchard that is established there just before the War of the Revolution, a story about two sisters who live together in love and hate. There's a con man who sets up there in the um, early 20th century. There's a woman whose schizophrenic son feels he's hearing voices all the time, other ghosts of the past. It it shifts ever so slightly and plays with the idea of the uncanny, of time being present with you all the time in the house. The house itself has a voice. And then every now and again, interpolated through the stories, there'll be a little short story about two um, wood beetles having frenzied sex at the same time as some other people are, are having a, um, a meeting at the house for illicit love. And there'll be poems. And th- these are all written by Daniel Mason, poems or songs or whatever from the different periods. It's absolutely a tour de force. And, of course, the thing that, the thing that lasts all through is the flora of the place. So, in a way, you're getting the history of America through mm-hmm. many of its kinds of characters, the good and the bad, and you're getting the history of its decline. Mm. Um, but the land keeps on bringing forth, even though it's been desecrated at certain times, it's enduring. So it's it's a novel of um, wit and flourish, but it's also got real heart. Every story is incredibly immersive, um, and you kind of care about the characters, and they do live on in your mind. And then there they are at the end, living with the last remaining person, who may or may not be dead. Mm. So um, it's it's marvellous. And it, it did sort of arrive on one of the lists of best books that I've seen this year, but otherwise not, not so much. Mm. And I can't even remember how I got onto it. But I've read it twice now because it, it rewards reading um, probably a third time as well. It almost sounds like a companion book in a way. It kind of was. It was a whole cast of characters. Yeah. It reminded me of a number of other books that I've read where time, um, for instance the Green No series, do you know those Elizabeth by Lucy in Boston, which is all about one house across a couple of centuries, Uh and also the Mantle Mass series, which is about two families in Ashdown Forest across two centuries, so it's got something of that, I mean it's not a new form Mm. but he kind of revivifies it particularly with his different registers that he uses. And I'll tell you what it's also like, Adam Thorpe's fantastic book, and I'm not going to remember the, the name of it, about a place in England, um, a, a, a plot of land in mm. Alberton, it's called. Oh, yeah. oh and, yes. And um, he, he does a similar thing, talking in different registers over a period of time. And there's mysteries buried in it that come up every now and again and may or may not be solved. So highly recommended. That's Northwoods by Daniel Mason. You're listening to Saturday Morning on RNZ National. Susie Ferguson with you today. And Kate Goldie and Elizabeth Knox uh, are with us for their picks of the year. Um, This is not a new one that you're going to tell us about now, Elizabeth. Uh, From 1974, Eve's Hollywood. Yes, so... um, Another act of completism. I am halfway through reading everything by Eve Babitz, Mm -hmm. um, the muse of L.A. Uh, She is gone now. 
she was writing between, I suppose, starting her magazine pieces in the 60s and so on and mm-hmm. then finishing up um, in the late 90s. Um, so she writes fiction and non-fiction, but her non-fiction is, well, it she just really pretty much reorganises a few things and changes the name so that um, you don't know which lover she's talking about, though you can guess whether it's Jim Morrison or James Taylor or Steve Martin or Harrison Ford or Graham Parsons, <laughs> because this is a person who knew everyone. Uh, this is her first book. And it's kind of a young person's memoir. Um, uh, Yeah, so Eve's Hollywood. And it's a very good example of a young person's memoir for any young person writing a young person's memoir. And that that seems to be almost like a form in itself at the moment. There's Mm. there's a lot of them. Mm. Uh, She, unlike some other muses of Los Angeles, like... Um, Nathaniel West or Raymond Chandler or Scott Fitzgerald is actually from Los Angeles, born and bred. Her father conducted film orchestra straw, uh, scores and her aunt was an actress and she went to Hollywood High and she spent her summers swimming at the Palisades. <laughs> and yeah, and but she's 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 quite waspish about uh, people not from LA writing about LA. Um, can I swear on national radio? Because this has got a swear word in it. If I'm reading a, a little, is it a quote? quote. Yeah, it's a quote. Yes, a quote. Quote. All the things that Nathaniel West noticed are here: the old people dying, the ennui, the architecture, and fat screenplay writers who think it's a tragedy when they can't get laid by the 14-year-old Doc Set in Gower Gulch, the same 14-year-old who bore the cowboys any old time. But if there had been someone, say, who wrote a book about New York, a nice, precise, short little novel in which New York was only described as ugly, horrendous and finally damned, and that was the book that everyone from elsewhere decided was the best book about New York there ever was, people who grew up knowing why New York was beautiful would finally, right before dessert, throw their sherry across the table and yell, I'll pick you up in a taxi, honey, and take you for a fucking guided tour, you blind. <laughs> and I was that, a little bit concerned about where you were going with that one, I have to say. Uh, it's, and uh, our apologies to anyone who is, uh, you know, offended. <laughs> yes, you can possibly be as offended as Eve Babitz by people saying that Nathaniel West wrote the best best book about Los Angeles. Um, what that does also is one of the things I love her for. That she goes from making an argument about something into these little swoops that become scenes. So she'll be, you know, she'll just be talking about something and then suddenly you're somewhere and something's happening. Like she drops you onto the dinner table where someone throws their sherry. So, <laughs> And so I, I guess I read her because, because she has a feeling of being incredibly up to the moment about being um, a person of appetite mm-hmm. um, in a big world where doors are open to her and where she knows what to do with her time but is deeply guilty that she fritters her away so much for having a very pleasant life. I mean, (laughs) she just lives for adventure and Mm. excitement and parties and holding up in Chateau Marmont with lovers for, you know, weeks at a time. (laughs) So, but she's 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 a really 
fantastic stylist mm-hmm. and um yeah and I can't I'm kind of saving up the rest of her because she cheers me up no end <laughs> just the appetite for life even if nothing happened that bit that you read is exciting all by itself isn't it because yeah. of its energy oh mm. yeah her, her prose is just like mm. a, for like a live wire it just mm. just carries all sorts of information and sense sensory information mm. and um and and just kind of is there like this fabulous storyteller. Mm. Mm. Kate, let's bring it back to a new New Zealand book, Signs of Life by Amy Head. Again, Hmm. having said that I've been resisting reading new books, I seem to have talked about three new books so far, but um, (laughs) this is, again, a a discontinuous narrative. Amy Hmm. Head is a Christchurch writer, and she wrote two wonderful books, Tough, which is short stories mostly set on the West Coast, and Rotorua, is it? A, th- a novel. Mm. This is her third book. And she it's set, and this is of particular interest to me, it's set in Christchurch, which is my hometown, mm-hmm. but it's set in the aftermath of the quakes over several years. And it's, I think, I think it's Patrick Evans who says on the back, this is not a shouty book, you know. It's, um, its power comes through its steady, quite sort of uninflected observation of all all the aspects of post-quake life, mm. the, um, the different things that individuals are dealing with, depending on how the quakes affected them, and they, you know, and it's coming from every aspect of their life, um, not just their houses and their suburbs, but their leisure activities, their ability to communicate with people, their family relationships, etc., etc. But it's written. She's she's got a beautifully clear narrative style, um, mm. but is a, a major observer, um, and so you. It works on a sort of granular level. You're seeing all these different things about the place, but it doesn't have a sense of checking off, um, you know, all the awful aspects of post-quake life. It's woven into the stories of the characters. Mm. And the characters are connected in different ways. Some lie slightly to the side of the main characters. And Flick, the main person, the person who we're with most of the way through the book, aptly named, um, is is who connects everyone and I'd say the major feeling, um, I mean, it's very funny at times. There's some really amusing and sort of mordant things that occur and are explained beautifully. But the main feeling throughout the book is this feeling of um, instability mm. and almost paranoid hounding. And that comes from insurance companies, the earthquake authority, the land itself. That's the major metaphor that the land is going to hold you hostage at any mm. minute. There's an amazing story where Flick is going for a run through bush and suddenly breaks out into sort of kind of terror that she's been pursued or that mm. any man nearby is going to, you know, um, violate her. And that's all with a oneness of this sort of feeling of... Um, Anxiety that everyone has because of the continuing aftershocks, but just because of the general instability of life. It's a really, really powerful mm. piece of writing. And, I mean, I, I, I couldn't find many reviews of it, It's um, which was one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about it as well. It's kind of quiet but potent, and you have a feeling of rumbling beneath the surface of every story, even when funny things are happening, like a girl is trying to help her mother get online dating, and the woman <laughs> goes for a date. And just the sort of the desperateness of a date that isn't working is just palpable. She seems to be able to um, enter any age, the, the head of any mm. age, a, a marvellous seer and um, storyteller. Yeah, I, th- I thought it was marvellous. Fantastic. Um, now, the next one that you have, Elizabeth, to tell us about is one that I've noticed making quite a few best of lists this year, 
which is uh, Lioness by Emily Perkins. Yes. Well, all right. So this this book, Lioness, Emily Perkins, is um, I think I read it in two sittings. So it's mm. it, that's one thing. It's very grabby, and it it does that by making you really worry about the main character. Mm. The main character, Therese, who was Teresa, which says everything about her background. She's married to a wealthy older man. She has a very nice life, uh, despite her not so nice to her stepkids, who she manages to more or less keep in control by always providing them with nice experience because she's a, she's she's gracious and she she's one of those people who basically efficiently offers acts of service mm-hmm. as acts of love um so hostess uh person who knows how to make a room look beautiful just just somebody who's really in control of their life and this is the point where it all starts to fall apart. Um, there's there's something fishy happening with her husband's property portfolios. There's a serious fraud office hovering. Um, and so you've got this kind of slow motion catastrophe, catastrophe that's financial at the root of it, possibly, but most of it is social. It's people standing in society it's their social confidence Mm. it's um their contract with the future and with each other and and at the same time as is kind of narrating this this perilous um catastrophic threat to to a very comfortable life Mm -hmm. uh you also get views you get what comes from inside um Therese, Teresa, her absolute love of the material world, mm. which is, I think, also Emily's absolute love of the material world. Just, just um, every everything is is adored and beautifully described, mm. and um, you know, just it's a feast of the senses. The whole book. Um, uh, there's there's a kind of a pivotal character. There's a inspiration perimenopausal wild woman guru who lives downstairs and and leads Teresa astray and has you know kind of ideas about how other women should be thinking about living their life, which are very liberating. But you know, um, people with ideas ultimately don't always um, know how to communicate them in a way that makes people feel free rather than ashamed of their shortcomings. Yeah. So. Anyway, Emily's very good on everything. She's she's a deeply socially astute writer who also um, is is kind of one of those. Um, I don't like to use the word lyrical, though she is lyrical. But one of those people who who can really make the world sing, the world mm-hmm. that she observes and then reproduces on the page. Mm-hmm. So so you get that sort of waspishness and and um you know sharpness and pithiness yeah. going on with this poetry and yeah i i loved it and the thing that i admire most in it is a, a thing that i always admire when books can do it and that's how to get a huge group of characters into a room or onto a beach and have a big dramatic scene play out and give everybody something to do and boy can she do that <laughs> that's an amazing I mean, an amazing talent to be able to do that because just trying to manage something like that as a writer is uh, 
it's quite a task. Maybe it's the history of acting and writing um, mm. writing for the stage. Mm. It's kind of Could like be. conducting a massive orchestra, isn't mm. it? And everyone has to play their part in balance. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mm, excellent. Okay. Now we're getting towards the end of your top five. Uh, we probably only have time for the five, unfortunately. Um, tell us, Kate, about dandelions. Uh, okay. I was going to say I'd, I'd love to be able to talk about Times Echo if we don't have oh, enough time. We do have time for Times Echo. Okay, that cool. was going to be the last bit. Um, yes. So dandelions is a memoir um, by Thea Lenarduzzi, an Italian-English writer quite a young woman mm-hmm. and it's published by Fitzcarraldo I don't know if listeners will know them um, beautiful editions which immediately you want to pick up mm. often European um, translations this is not in fact translation she is the daughter or the granddaughter of a family well she's the fourth generation in an Italian family who have lived over those generations um, over a hundred years between England and Friuli in Italy near mm-hmm. the Adriatic coast and the dandelions of the title is a sort of metaphor that animates the book um, because she sees the family like dandelion spores mm-hmm. that spread and, um, I guess, fertilise. Or um, do they fertilise? My biology and botany is not that good. Anyway, the, um, the spores go... Germinate. 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 It's <laughs> little seeds from the, the, kind of the cloud. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Um, they used to blow dandelion clocks. That's right. And, yeah. so, and there's quite a lovely disquisition and a little history on dandelions as a symbol. Um, poets have used it, architects have used it, etc. Um, and she, the book is mostly her um, interviewing her nonna in Friuli, her grandmother, who still feels that really she's English. And Thea herself has lived often in Italy, but mostly in London, mm-hmm. and feels neither English nor Italian. So it's about the ins- instability mm. of um, identity. And she unfolds um, the family's history through the various individuals, why they left, why they came back. And in so doing, you get an amazingly discursive and interesting history of all manner of things the um, Italian futurists and their obsession with flight, Mussolini and some of his, you know, worse lunatic depredations, um, the history of the landscape, the food. The nonna is very, very evasive. Um, she, she'll, she'll, as, as nonnas tend to be. <laughs> yeah. and, and Thea's hungry for the reasons behind why this and that happened. Mm. But And the, and the nonna's really the only medium back to um, the, the older members of the family. They sit at the table or they talk on the phone. Um, sometimes you don't know whether you're in England or whether you're in Italy, and it doesn't matter. And that's all part of her feeling like she's of both places, but of neither. Mm-hmm. And so um, she she sort of abjures a linear storytelling. She comes and goes back to the 20s and to her lost gr- grandfather who's buried in England and they haven't seen his grave, and then forward to Friuli now. And it's it's incredibly beautifully written. It's not translated. She wrote in English, mm-hmm. and she's... Um, She's, yeah, I guess you'd say she's a pretty lyrical writer, but she's also very, um, she's questioning memoir as well and th- as a form mm-hmm. and the whole act of remembering and mm. the um, slippages that occur, especially within family stories and the mythologies that families build about themselves. Yeah. So part, I was very attracted to it because my grandparents were Italian and there's lots about her 
um, thinking about identity that was very familiar to me. And she also writes beautifully about the whole mysterious exoticism of going to the grandparents' house, which I, you know, annually, which I remember very, very clearly. Mm-hmm. But um, I think anyone would would love this book because it's it's fundamentally about what family connections going back mean or don't mean, who we are, yeah. how much we're formed by them. And anyone who's emigrated anywhere, um, and I guess we've all come from somewhere, and we um, here in New Zealand, and we've all come from elsewhere at some point. So it's um, a, a very, very beautiful, funny, um, thoughtful, and quite timely book, thinking mm. about you know new people coming to New Zealand all the time. And, and for us, who have been here longer, thinking about their loneliness, their sense of instability, their longing, longing, is a large part of the book, whether it's f- and and the confusions of longing. Should mm. you be longing for this place or that place? Mm. Yeah, mm. that sounds very rich, and and like you say, it's got uh, a lot of resonance for a lot of people who live yeah. here as well. By the sound of things, I mean, I, I even feel it going from Christchurch to Wellington. You know, that's an immigration. <laughs> <laughs> Your overseas emigration there. Mm-hmm. Um, we will talk about Times Echo in just a moment, but uh, Elizabeth, let's come back to you for memory. Memory. So memory is the central, pivotal book of a book series by Lois McMaster Bujold, and it's called the Miles Volkosigan series. Um, so this is science fiction. Uh, science fiction of the kind of anthropological, this is a very strange human adapted colony and this is how they live here Mm -hmm. and she's got kind of like multiple scenes over the whole series of different kinds of ways that human beings have organized themselves having been gone from earth for for a long time Mm -hmm. and um she also loves sort of sprightly social comedy and she loves um politics and she loves space opera and daring do so the whole Mm. series does all this but the the character of Miles Volkosigan is um, he's he's a fantastic hero because you you know you can get your reacher in a book you know your 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 massive restless man who wanders around solving people's problem with his wits and his fists. Well, <laughs> Miles Volkosigan is a kind of a reacher except he is um, short, mm-hmm. very short. He's under five foot. He's fab. Fragile, he's febrile, he's maniacal, and he has <laughs> brittle bones. So, oh. yeah, so, you know, he's always constantly breaking his bones. So he really has to kind of, it, it, the, he wants a big life, and to get it, he sort of has to steal it. And his stealing of a big life, in fact, a fleet of mercenaries, ends up being, you know, the whole, running the whole first part of the series. And then, he makes a series of mistakes and lets people down and is badly injured with a brain injury with catastrophic consequences to him as if he didn't already have enough problems. Mm-hmm. Goes home, goes home to his childhood home, which is a big, gracious house. There's no one there apart from the gate guard and the cat. And he, then this is memory and this is the book where he puts himself together again, figures out who he is mm-hmm. and how... The rest of his life can use him, and it's it's enormously satisfying about um, identity. This mm. book because it has he has this sort of um, brain injury, 
but there's also something funny going on with his the master spy who was his boss for years who seems to suddenly be losing it so it's about it's about the dissolution of people's ideas about themselves mm-hmm. and it's a very grown up book all her books they they are in genre but they're deeply human and deeply warm but they've got the thing that I reading a whole series no, mm. and and I haven't quite finished the series because 15 one, books isn't it Yes, that's yeah. right, 15 books. But that's not enough, really, it isn't. Because <laughs> the pleasure of reading a series is um, finding those repeating characters mm. and getting to know the, the walk-ons or the, or the repeating characters or the sort of the, the principles and then the, the, the halo of characters around the principal, mm. getting to know them so well that she'll present you with the situation they find themselves in and you know how they're going to feel about it. Mm-hmm. So she's a very funny writer. So some of the comedy, a lot of the comedy comes from that situation where you go, oh, no, <laughs> this, oh, I know exactly how <laughs> Ivan is going to uh-huh. think about this knock on his door late at night. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So... um yeah, so I, I recommend I recommend the series. I actually recommend Lois McMaster Bujol. She she won a lot of prizes during her career. I think her career's probably come to an end, though. I don't know whether she's alive or dead, which is a bit bad. But um, she has many books, and you can motor your way through all of them in about a year if you love them as much as I do. <laughs> and um, yeah, and and. You know, reading a good book series that kind of carries a mm, carries a mm. character from adventure to adventure is basically mm. right like reading a very very long novel. Mm. Which, very satisfying. Yeah, very very satisfying. Very satisfying. Mm. Mm. Uh, we just have time for your last ones on the list, uh, Kate. I'm going to come back to you for Times Echo. So. This is by um, a, a cultural historian, Jeremy Eichler. He's mm-hmm. the music critic for the Boston Globe. And this story is about music and memory, and in particular, it's not a story, it's a, um, it's a piece of um, cultural history. Mm. He's looking at four composers across the 20th century and their musical responses to both the Second World War and the Holocaust. Mm. And the composers are Arnold Schoenberg, Richard Strauss, Benjamin Britten, and Dmitry Shostakovich. Mm-hmm. It's impossible in in two minutes to do justice to this, except to say I I think it's a towering work of um, cultural thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not a conventional history in one way. At at the heart of it is um, his idea that not only does music help us remember, or, you know, we we all experience that through um, music, light Mm. and serious, um, it, it, it has a sort of u- almost unique capacity to evoke memory. Not only that, but do we remember through music, but music remembers us. Mm-hmm. He believes that um, music is like a palimpsest. Um, it, it accretes information and feeling and thought from the circumstances of its creation, and, and that's why he wants to open out the composer's lives so you understand them. But also, um, every time it's performed, new meaning comes to it. And I suppose at the very, very heart of the book, you don't have to know these pieces of work to understand what he's talking about, although it's really good to go and listen to them. So you could listen to them at the same time. Yeah. Um, But he's looking at their responses, and Mm. he he, um, yokes 
Strauss in Schoenberg together. Schoenberg, a German Jew, shattered by um, the Holocaust. And he mm. goes to um, his exile to America and he writes uh, Survivor from Warsaw, which is a dissonant, um, disturbing, fantastic piece of music in direct response to that. Richard Strauss, by contrast, had a very unusual and problematic relationship with the Nazi hierarchy and profited from Jewish people being taken out of musical life in Germany. And he writes Metamorphosen, which mm-hmm. is a beautiful piece of music, and at the end writes In Memoriam, but never quite indicates who it's yeah. for. And Eichler argues that in part it's um, in, memor- in memory of his own missteps throughout the war. And then Benjamin Britten and um, mm-hmm. Shostakovich are kind of yoked together because they both um, have different responses to the mm. Holocaust. Benjamin Britten writes the War Requiem, which is, and the text for that is both the Catholic Requiem Mass and w- Wilfred Owen's poems. Mm. He basically jumps over the Second World War and goes back to what is Britain's great trauma, the First World War. Mm. Shostakovich writes about the Babayan massacre, which the memory of which was suppressed by Stalin mm-hmm. and Khrushchev, and sort of confronts that memory in Soviet history. But really, deep down, um, Eichler is talking about how music, the music of past time, mm. can jump over time. It's not timeless so much as it's talking to us through time and asking us to confront what's happened in between mm. time and to bring all the experiences of the 20th century to impact our listening so that we may act in the future Mm. um, in good ways. And it was a really interesting and moving book to read Mm. while thinking of the Ukraine and of Gaza. Um, Everything that he says in that book about the memory of the Holocaust is applicable to so much Mm. of what's going on in the world at the moment. And he he sort of, he, he starts with this most amazing image um, outside um, Birkenau camp mm-hmm. was an oak that was called Goethe's oak. Goethe, the um, humanist thinker, romantic man who brought the Enlightenment into the, into you know the New Age, mm. and that oak is sort of cut down in order to build Birkenwald, and then the stump is um, burned by um, Allied fire near the end of the war, and that's the sort of symbol that echoes through the mm. book. Auschwitz, the war, but Auschwitz basically destroys many of the humanist values that was so much part of German Jewish life. And he, he, he looks at that all the way through the book, as well as mm. um, writing about the music and the places where the music mm. a- emerged from. There's the most amazing um, description of Baba Yag, which is basically the ravine was kind of filled in mm. and kind of erased, really. And a, and a most moving um, description of him going to Coventry Cathedral and walking through the the ruined cathedral to the new cathedral. Mm-hmm. It's it's so rich and so thought provoking. Um, I had I've, I've read it twice now, and I still feel like it, there's there's more that can there's be brought get, from yeah. it. Yeah, an um, an amazing book. Yeah, mm. that does sound extraordinary. We have no time really, but a quick mention, uh, Elizabeth. For the Wren, the Wren. The Wren, the Wren. Well, Annie Enright's coming to the festival, so... Oh, um, there we go. This is, this is well, to me, this is the book of hers to read. I, I really like her books, but this one is unsettling and, and, and wonderful and very stressful. Once again, I actually take stressful as a value in a book because that's, that's suspense. <laughs> suspense when it's done about yeah. characters. So this is a mother and daughter 
um, Carmel and Nell mm-hmm. and their bad choices are men. And behind the whole story there is Carmel's father, who is a particular kind of Irish poet. At the bad, this is why I, you know, grabbed this book because it has a bad egotistical writer in it. I love those books. Um, <laughs> uh, he's really well imagined. Mm. He, he's self-regarding and posturing, and um, Anne Wright gives him some actually pretty good poems. Um, the the woman. The women are all fatherless in the book because he absents hmm. himself to live a bigger life and um, Carmel's father, yeah, uh, hmm. Carmel's, yes, uh, you know, all, all the men are missing. They just, they just, <laughs> they're just missing and um, the, the woman characters are kind of wandering around in a world of men like women wandering around a wilderness not knowing the difference between mm. the edible mushrooms and the poisonous ones um, and mm. Nellie ends up with a very poisonous mushroom <laughs> and so a lot of the book is about her trying to recover from her relationship with Phelan who likes to be rough and beard and yeah so the Mm. It's very much like an E.M. Forster novel um, hmm. that about people making disastrous choices and then walking their way out of them. <laughs> yeah, very satisfying. Good stuff. Thank you both very much uh, for talking us through those lists. Great lists, and also a note that those lists will be available on our website, as indeed will our conversation. Uh, Saturday If you're wanting to go back, I know very many of you are in touch with us saying that you do want to go back and have a listen and have a look at those lists of books. Thank you very much, both of you. Merry Christmas as well. Thank you. Yes. We're nearly there. Thank nearly you. there.